Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the 457th show of ROI. Our guest for today's show is Dr. Dylan Carroll, author and history teacher at Butte College, who is going to talk with us about his book, Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness, and the Civil War Soldiers. The history buffs for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. The show's theme song is Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zapzaptel. Our producer and engineer is, as always, Mr. David Baker. Uh, we'd like to begin the show off by introducing our guest, Dr. Dylan Carroll. Hello, Dylan. How are you doing? Hello. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you on. We call the first segment of the show Farouk de Naren, and our goal is to give listeners a little bit of a background of what today's subject is, in particular, your book, Invisible Wounds, The Mental Illness of Civil War Soldiers. So can you start us off with some basic information of what drew you to write a book about this topic and its relevance? Of course. Yeah, um, I uh, am really a child of, in a sense, the war on terror. I graduated high school in 2001, uh, and then the next fall, of course, um, was 9-11, and then the war on terror began. And so I grew up in the shadow of these um, foreign foreign wars ongoing, and um, the uh, wars in Afghanistan and in Iraq, there was a continual and growing conversation about the um, mental health impacts and specifically of PTSD. So that was kind of already in the background hum of my life as I was uh, going to college and, you know, living as a 20 year old. Um, and I became obsessed with the American Civil War at college. Um, I went to California State University, Chico and had a marvelous instructor named Dr. Robert Tinkler, who uh, taught the American Civil War and Reconstruction. And in California, the Civil War is not not prominent in, in education. Um, it's more, you know, gold rush and, and westward movement and that sort of thing. And so it was sort of a whole new world for me. I became pretty obsessed with the American Civil War and uh, eventually continued on to graduate education. And... It was in graduate education I became more interested in this topic. I read a book by a historian named Eric Dean called Shook Over Hell. And Eric Dean compared Vietnam veterans with Civil War veterans and argued that Civil War veterans may have been afflicted with post-traumatic stress disorder. And it was, it's a very fascinating book, but it's really the only book on that topic out there. And I thought there was a, a lot of... Um, a lot of things left unexplored and unsaid, and I thought I would, you know, perhaps fill in the gap. And we have uh, invisible wounds after after ten years, uh, ten years later from that moment. And invisible wounds really examines the effects of military service and during the American Civil War, and particularly combat, on the psyches and the emotional well-being of Civil War soldiers as much as we can get access to their psyches and emotional well-beings. 
It looks at both uh, white Civil War soldiers and both Union and Confederate soldiers, although I, I will be upfront and honest that I focus a lot more on Union, white Union Civil War soldiers. Um, and that's mostly because of the records. The records for white Northern soldiers and veterans are just, there's much more and they're much better than uh, white Confederate soldiers. Um, and I also focus on African-American soldiers who exclusively fought for the Union, for the North, and, and their experience. And to my knowledge, I'm the only historian so far who's kind of looked at the um, emotional and, and psychological effects of soldiering in the Civil War for black soldiers as well. And it really looks at the whole panoply of service in the Civil War, which included um, harsh military discipline, arduous marches, um, really poor and uh, sometimes no rations, debilitating disease, and disease was the great killer of the Civil War, um, killing two men for every one man killed in combat. And, of course, the terror of battle, which took a severe psychological toll on its combatants. Um, and so I examined the whole panoply of the emotional fallout and psychological fallout of the war. But I also pay attention to how soldiers coped. And um, I explored the uh, coping mechanisms that soldiers employed to, to deal with the, the trauma of um, soldiering in the war and of combat. And such coping mechanisms, I argue, include things like um, humor, include things like camaraderie, turning to each other. And they also include religion. Many soldiers um, turned to religion during the war. Um, and also straggling, which was a 19th century term for basically going AWOL, um, briefly leaving the front lines for a break. Um, and then... I also explore the sort of uh, medical establishment debate, uh, which was a, a debate of sort of concentric circles between medical professionals, um, the families of mentally ill Civil War veterans, uh, and those veterans and the veteran community itself. And they all had an ongoing debate over the next 30 years about what caused this and what was going on. And uh, eventually, a new field of, of medicine, of uh, early proto-psychiatry uh, called neurology emerged, and it really emerged out of the Civil War. The American father of neurology, um, Silas Weir Mitchell, uh, treated nerve-damaged Civil War soldiers um, at, at uh, Turner's Lane Hospital in Philadelphia, and then eventually he goes on to in, in part found this field of neurology um, and neurologists begin to question the status quo of medical and, and psychological thought, arguing that, you know, the nervous system was the, the center of perhaps, um, you know, some, some manifestations of mental illness. And, and they also were unique in bringing in cultural and social factors that may have caused mental illness as well. Okay. We have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of the show. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM.
the KALA website is your one-stop spot to find out more about your favorite radio station. Submit a public service announcement, catch up on news about KALA, and listening to any of our three stations, 885-1061 or The Stinger, is just a click away. Visit KALAFM.org. That's KALAFM.org. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is John Keeley and this is the second segment of the show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Dylan Carroll, author and history teacher at Butte College, and we're talking about his book, The Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness, and the Civil War Soldiers. Our history boss for today's show are Rick Sweet and Ed Broders. Rick, why don't you start us off? Thank you, John. Appreciate it. Dylan, uh, the males in my family uh, fought in World War II, and, and uh, it had a serious effect on their their perspective of life once they, they returned to uh, American society. Uh, in your research, how did the we'll call it the PTSD, uh, affect the lives of these returning veterans once they tried to to uh, um, uh, meld back into into society? Right. Great question. Um, yeah. And the, the lives of Civil War veterans were really impacted by their service in the war. First off, uh, even before we talk about maybe the psychological fallout, Civil War veterans returned to an economy that was uh, increasingly sort of subject to booms and busts. Uh, Like all wartime economies in 1866, there was a post-war recession. And then in 1873, there was a depression, what 19th century Americans called a panic. And so it was already an, an kind of, you know, unstable economy. And add to that, uh, there was a somewhat of a prejudice against uh, veterans and employing veterans. And, and veterans felt it as they um, came back and tried to get jobs. And, and that came from their service in the war. There were stories about, say, for instance, uh, Sherman's bummers, uh, the soldiers in William Tecumseh Sherman's army who, in the march to the sea, you know, ripped up railroad tracks and tore down fences and really destroyed everything. And, and people wondered you know, were these soldiers going to be able to come back and, and reintegrate integrate as civilians? Were they going to be able to become part of civilian life after having lived as tramping soldiers? And soldiers were aware of that and, and commented on it frequently. Um, there was one veteran in a newspaper editorial who wrote, quote, there's no disguising it, boys. The people are afraid of us. They heard many strange and bad stories about us while we were in the army, end quote. And so they were you know, frustrated with this. And then you add on top of that the psychological fallout. Um, even as early as the Grand Review, one soldier named Michael Fitch noted that, quote, the nerves of the soldiery had not recovered from the tremor of the battle charge and that they were still in sort of a daze from the war with the, quote, glitter of the gun barrel and sword, the red carnage of the field, and the terrible echoes of the artillery were still too near to them, end quote. So, for instance, you know, they this played out in their lives in um, unique and, and sometimes disturbing ways. Uh, I have an example of a soldier from Massachusetts named Theodore Otis, 
who at first seems sort of act like, like a model transition. He uh, begins work as a florist. He seems pretty successful. Um, but he's increasingly subject to wild swings in emotion. Uh, his brother notes that sometimes he seemed like sort of emotionally dead and, and didn't care for anything. Um, his mother-in-law and his brother-in-law noted that he sometimes seemed didn't have control of his emotions at all. And he increasingly just sort of seems detached from reality and uh, talks about being haunted by the war. And uh, for many of them, this, this kind of trauma played out in, in, in emotions that were uncontrollable and difficult to get a hold of and, and sometimes even disturbing paranoia. Um, there's some cases I have in the book of, of Civil War veterans talking about you know, people out to thinking people are out to kill them, either, you know, to poison them or shoot them. And there's this this paranoia they can't get rid of. And um, psychologists trace sort of trauma as being sometimes manifesting as this extreme paranoia. Um, so it, it, it really played out in, in, in traumatizing and disturbing ways. And, and, and I can go on and on, but I'll, I'll limit it to that. OK, Ed. Yes, um uh, Dylan, can you tell us, um, during the Civil War, uh, give a sense of how many of, how, what percentage of the Union soldiers were afflicted by this? And um, during their time of service, were they kind of rotated in and out of combat? Or, or once you were there, did you stay there? That's a great question. Unfortunately, I, I don't have a sense of what the percentage was of, of Civil War soldiers who may have suffered with psychiatric or emotional fallout from the war. Uh, there wasn't, you know, sort of a census bureau that was going around and asking soldiers these questions. Unfortunately, I wish there was. And I think it's further complicated by part of my argument, which is, you know, I argue that uh, soldiers employed a variety of coping mechanisms. And I think these coping mechanisms sort of have further um, made this difficult to understand because there may have been and likely was many Civil War soldiers who were suffering, but they were able to cope. And so they remain invisible to us, right? Because they were able to self-soothe and stay out of a hospital or an insane asylum. And, and thus, we don't really know about them unless we uh, look deeply into their letters and diaries. So it, it's pretty complicated. Um, one of the institutions that I that I have in the book, St. Elizabeth's uh, Hospital, which is an insane asylum in Washington, D.C., they sort of became the de facto treatment center for Civil War soldiers and veterans. Um, and any Civil War veteran who could demonstrate um, symptoms that popped up within three years of their discharge was entitled to service or, or, or treatment at St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Um, and... From 1860 to about 1890, there's nearly 3,000 Civil War soldiers and veterans there. It's a pretty small number, considering that 2 million Union soldiers served um, in the entire war. So it, it's hard to get a sense of that. And then, I'm sorry, what was your, the second part of your question? Um, if they were rotated in and out of combat, mm. or if you got to combat, were you stuck there? That's right. Yeah, it's it's really the latter. Once soldiers were there, they were they were mostly stuck there. And that rotation didn't really come about until World War Two, that soldiers would be rotated off the line to sort of get a break and hot shower and even have a meal 
and then uh, go back to combat for a while. But Civil War soldiers don't have that. If uh, oftentimes they um, are, are in the field of combat for repeated campaigns and and some of the soldiers' records, you read the campaigns they went through, and it's just you're just you know your jaw kind of hits the floor. There's soldiers who fought in you know Antietam and Chancellorsville and Gettysburg, and then the Overland Campaign, the Wilderness Fight, um, Cold Harbor. And you, it's just incredible that they went through all these brutal campaigns. Okay. Um, when you wrote your, uh, you brought up earlier that you examined the post-war conditions and situations for black Americans that fought. I'm assuming that they're from the get-go after the war, that their living conditions are not nearly as uh, solid as there, you would say, the white Union soldiers. Can you give us some more information what you discovered there? Yeah. Um, the African-American experience was um, really surprising, and, and I learned a lot. And, yeah, I think, you know, generally, especially uh, for Southern African-Americans who were former slaves who returned to their homes in the South after the war, um, yeah, things are a little less stable, Uh uh, generally, African Americans are, you know, making less money than white Americans at the time. Um, they have, you know, less income, sort of across the board. But what's interesting, at least what I found to be interesting, is that the inspiration for black soldiers is much clearer. The war for white Union soldiers is, you know, kind of muddled. It starts initially to defend the Union, and then eventually it shifts to destroy slavery. Um, and soldiers had different feelings about that, of course. Some Union soldiers were happy to destroy slavery, and others weren't. Um, but for black soldiers, the inspiration for the war is incredibly clear, right? Um, and they, many of them are enthusiastic volunteers in a campaign to destroy slavery. And many of them, um, like Prince Rivers, who's a character in my book, um, notes that this is kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I'm paraphrasing, but he basically says, if our fathers had this chance, we wouldn't have been enslaved. And, and this is a once-in-a-lifetime chance, and, and we have to take it. And, you know, because the inspirations for war to destroy slavery, to meet slaveholders on the battlefield— in some ways, the war is, um, I argue, perhaps less traumatic for them because they have this group dynamic uh, of destroying slavery. And then after the war, there's these sort of heady days of reconstruction where African-Americans, especially in the South, they see slavery destroyed. Uh, they see citizenship with the 14th Amendment given to them. They see voting rights with the 15th Amendment. Um, and, and it seems like things are changing that uh, this is a brand new world. Um, of course, that unfortunately doesn't last. Um, but for many of them, it, it's a different experience, and they are perhaps less sort of traumatized by the experience. Um, and uh, not to say that it's, it's better for them. I'm, you know, we don't know that for sure. And I argue that um, we can't get a total adequate sense of the black experience because so many hospitals discriminated and wouldn't accept black patients. And so even if we wanted to try and get an adequate sense, we couldn't because of the pervasive discrimination among the medical field at the time. Okay. Um, and even hospitals that were open for 
uh, black veterans, they often had uh, doctors who would blame mental illness on freedom, saying that the abolition of slavery had driven many African-Americans insane, which is kind of preposterous. And so you might no kind of wonder. (laughs) Yeah. And so you might it it suggests that maybe African-Americans would be hesitant to even go to hospitals if that's the kind of things that that doctors were saying. Rick. Um, Hey, uh, Dylan, you mentioned earlier uh, in the opening segment that returning veterans were subject to prejudice. Uh, I find that, I mean, I, that's just stunning to me. What what was the root of that prejudice? That's a good question. Um, you know, I think part of it is rooted in 19th century Americans' fears of standing armies and returning veterans. Um, it, it's hard for us to remember now, but you know, the founding fathers and 19th century Americans thought the greatest threat to liberty was standing armies. And uh, the Union Army, like I said, at its high point, has two million soldiers in it. And so many Americans are, are there, of course, they celebrate and they're happy about the Union Army and its successes. But they're also a little bit uneasy because of this 19th century um, hesitance for, for armies and standing armies. And then certainly, I think some Americans had visions of, you know, Caesar's army crossing the Rubicon, right? That maybe these Civil War soldiers were going to bring the violence from the campaign back to cities and hamlets and farms. And there's all these rumors that um, flow about in, in the small towns and hamlets throughout the North and the Midwest about soldiers rioting and committing atrocities. Most of them have no wings. They're rumors. But, you know, um, you know, sometimes lies can go halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on, as they say. Um, and uh, I actually only found one instance of a union riot in a city, and that was in Chicago, um, where Chicago was uh, um, not being very welcoming to union soldiers. And then one bar basically refused service to a company of union soldiers and they rioted and started a bar fight. Um, but that's the only instance I've actually ever found. Sounds like Chicago. And then like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, like I said, like I mentioned earlier, um, you know, civilians had read stories about, about, um, the soldiers in the army of the Tennessee who participated in the March to the sea and, uh, destroyed telegraph lines and railroads and fence posts and, and burned plantations, all, you know, all of which to terrorize Southern civilians in the hope to end the war quicker. And some of them, I think, wondered if that was going to happen once these soldiers came home, if they were going to bring that uh, back to the cities and farms. And of course, that wasn't true. And it deeply hurt uh, Civil War veterans who were stung um, you know, by this sense that they were all going to be future criminals once they came home. Um, and, and many of them commented on it, on kind of how, how hurt and stung they were by this pervasive sense. Okay. Um, it is customary, Dylan, that we give our uh, guests the last word on the show. So can you explain to our listeners why you think knowing about mental illness among the Civil War soldiers is relevant in today's world? Yeah, 
I think that this this gives sort of greater complexity to our knowledge of the American Civil War and looking at the human experience of soldiering and and the human experience of soldiering on long dead Americans, 19th century Americans, gives us a greater complexity and and detail of the Civil War experience and helps us understand it better. Um, And uh, I think it's relevant Obviously, having just finished uh, foreign wars in the Middle East and Afghanistan and um, further back Iraq, it can sort of tell us about some of the uh, issues and complexities that um, are going on among the nation's veterans today and give us a greater picture of uh, what we might expect and how we might better serve um, returning veterans. And I think it tells us about the um, history of uh, discrimination and racism that, that afflicted American medicine at the time and, and by extension American society in the 19th century and how uh, African Americans who may have wanted to get treatment oftentimes didn't have options and when they did they often were treated by doctors who held racist opinions and, uh, and, and um, had discriminatory outcomes. And uh, it finally tells us about the evolution of understanding of mental illness and how it changed socially and culturally throughout the 19th century. And I think informs um, that uh, the change in, in psychiatry and mental illness that are still undergoing today and how we think about it and understand it. Okay. Okay. All right, we would we come back, we'll wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes the 457th show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. Our producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme, which was written and performed by Mark Zap Zaptel. My name is John Keeley. And we would like to thank our noted guest, Dr. Dylan Carroll, author and history teacher at Butte College, who talked with us about his book, The Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness, and the Civil War Soldiers. The history bus for today's show were Ed Broders and Rick Sweet. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all our listeners to experience the great Basutu proverb, Hotso Pulanala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. <music> <music>